Mark chapter 6, we're going to finish uh, Mark chapter 6 today for the most part. Uh, Thank you, Jesus. And as you're making uh, your way there, um, I just want to bring to light a a story heard in the news uh, about a woman who called 911. And uh, and she called, uh, she said, uh, I'm exhausted, I need help, send somebody, and she hung up. That was the end of the call. So not knowing the nature of her emergency, the, the EMS uh, dispatcher sent a, a, a fire engine to her house, sent a, a paramedic rig to her house, and, and sent a sheriff's officer out to her house. And they all arrived, and they found uh, a woman who was there at the house alone with a moving truck out front. And she had, she had called uh, for movers to come help her, and they didn't show up. Uh, and so she thought, well, I'll just call 911 and ask them for help. And uh, so, <laughs> you know, she, it was an emergency to her. I mean, she's moving and, and had the truck rented and all this stuff. So uh, they, you know, as politely as, as you can imagine that they, they might have been, uh, they explained to her that this did not constitute an emergency. It was not what they'd been designed to do. But again, uh, this gal, having the right concept of, of who it was that, that she was calling, that, that they were there to come in, in the case of an emergency, and that, that uh, you know, half a dozen uh, strong-backed uh, men would arrive in a hurry uh, to help her. So she had the right concept of who it was she was calling. She had the wrong concept of what they were called to do. Uh, and in our text today, we have people, the same kind of dilemma. They have the right concept of who Jesus is, but they have the wrong concept of what it is that he is called to do. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. And now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed by. Uh, And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and he said, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 51, and then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. So we we pick up the story here. This is immediately after the feeding of the 5,000 as we studied last week. And of course, that was 5,000 men who were miraculously fed altogether, maybe as many as 25,000 people counting women and children, a huge miracle that had taken place. And, and it took place at the end of an extremely long day for these disciples. Jesus had been preparing them, was preparing them for ministry. He was getting ready to pass the baton on to them. They didn't really know or understand at this point that Jesus is going to be leaving them and that he's going to be imparting to them the the command to to go forth into all the nation to make disciples. They really don't get it yet. And so Jesus is trying to prepare them, teaching them about ministry, what ministry is all about. You'll recall a couple of weeks ago we looked at him sending them out two by two. Uh, he, had go, he was in Nazareth, he's trying to minister to the people, trying to bring the gospel, and, and he, because he was, 
you know, raised in Nazareth. He was rejected. He said himself, a prophet is without honor, uh, not without honor except in his hometown. In other words, his hometown people don't give him honor. They can't see that, you know, there's something supernatural here happening here. They go, well, this is, this is the carpenter's kid. This is, this is that, that boy of Mary's kind of derogatory term there. And so Jesus, wanting to reach these people, just his love for these people that would, were rejecting him, he thought, well, if I can send maybe the disciples out that they don't know, who didn't raise up in this area, maybe they'll have more success than me. And he's preparing them for ministry, breaks them two by two, sends them out. And so they're out moving and working and ministering. And they returned excited and exhausted uh, as ministry, only ministry can do. You know, they're out serving and, and giving of themselves. And, and really, this is kind of their first experience in being used to the Lord and, and doing these things and preaching the gospel. And, and it's just in, in, exhilarating and exhausting all at the same time. And so they come, and, and the text is careful to tell us, as we studied last week, that, that uh, even when they returned and they were trying to tell Jesus of everything, they're still serving so much that they don't even have time to eat. They're serving so much. Um, and so uh, they, Jesus promised them he was going to take them on a retreat, get in the boat, and go to the other side, rest and relax. And so they do. And as it turns out, the boat ride was about all the rest that they were going to get. They got to the other side. The multitude saw them going over there. And the, you know, the Sea of Galilee, only six miles across. And so they never really lost sight of the boat. And they ran around the shore to the place where they were going to be. And they were, hey, it's us again. Glad you could make it sort of thing. And the disciples are beside themselves. Just, oh my gosh, you again, sort of deal. And, and, and the Lord, his heart of compassion for these people, just he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. The disciples see them as the people that are interrupting their vacation. Vacation, uh, the people that are that are just sucking them dry, and Jesus says, "No, these are the people that 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 just need me." And his heart goes out for them, and so he uses the occasion as a teaching opportunity. He wants to show his disciples, "Look, no, no, you, you you don't turn your back on these people. You don't send these people away. You, you minister to these people." And so again, more opportunities for Jesus to show them what ministry is all about. He shows them, "Hey, you got to be flexible in ministry. Yeah, you thought you were going to get a break, but you know, surprise." you got to minister to the people, so you got to be flexible. Uh, he, he teaches them, you, you can't be self-centered in ministry. If you're self-centered in ministry, you're going to miss it. You have to be other-centered. you got to be thinking about other people. And so, you know, he models that for them. And he teaches them a huge lesson in that they need to trust God for what they lack. Uh, in that as we serve the Lord, we're always going to be lacking. There's, there's never going to come a time when we, when we bring, you know, what we have before the Lord to serve Him and His people and that it's enough. It's never enough. And, and so whatever it is that we have, we need to bring to the Lord and we need to allow Him to bless it. We need to allow Him to multiply it. And so the Lord teaches them that lesson as well. <clears throat> and finally, the Lord teaches them that, you know, you, you guys, as you served all the people, you yourselves are going to be taken care of. He tells the disciples, go collect the, uh, the fragments, don't let anything be wasted. And the text tells us that 12 basketfuls of fragments of, of, of remaining fish and bread was left. And, and this, of course, there's 12 disciples. And, and the lesson there, very clear. As you focus on taking care of other people, as you focus on ministering to other people, God's going to take care of you. 
He will will take care of you. He'll supply what you need. And and, and so, you know, we need to seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. All these things will be added unto us as well if we simply do that. And ultimately, the big lesson, the overarching lesson of the whole thing, and it carries over to our text today, is that Jesus wanted his disciples to look to him for everything. They wanted them to to trust him for, for everything. And so here we are, we're in our text, the people are fed, they're filled, they're no doubt overwhelmed, and no doubt as word spreads through the the multitudes that it's by a miracle that they've been fed, their hearts now are stirred. It's nearing the Passover season, fresh on their minds is the feast that remembered God's deliverance from their bondage in Egypt, and now they're in bondage again. They're in uh, living in the region under Roman rule, under Roman uh, occupying force, uh, Roman occupation, And, and so they're in bondage again, and they're expecting their Messiah to come, one who's going to right all of their earthly wrongs, they thought. A Messiah who was going to come, as they thought, a conquering king. And John gives us the details here uh, in this story um, that they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. See, in, in our text, we finish off verse 44. Those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. And it go, picks up right in verse 45 saying, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. But there's a transaction that happened in between. John's gospel records it. John 6, verses 14 and 15. I'll read it for you. It says this, Then those men... When they, those 5,000 who they fed, those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this truly is the prophet who is said to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountains by himself alone. And so we see there that this, this expectation of the people was that they wanted to take Jesus by force. And, and it's crazy. It, it just seems ridiculous, right? As to just to say that out loud. That, that we recognize that this is the Messiah. We want to take him by force and force him to be our king, right? But we do that even today. I mean, we sitting in this room, we're guilty of that. I mean, how often is it that men, they rightly perceive who Jesus is? Wow, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. I I recognize that. But what do we do? We wrongly try to force him to conform to our plans, to our beliefs, to our agenda. Yes, I called 911 and had you come out because I need help. I'm moving. Can't you see it's an emergency? You know, and we do this to Jesus. It's ridiculous, but we do it. And, and you know, we one example that we have in the church, and it's kind of an older example, it's not so much the hot-button issue anymore, but it's still going on, is that the, the positive confession movement. You know, where there's, there's a contingent of people within the church who teach and believe that no matter what you, you, you ask for, that if, if you name it and claim it in Jesus' name, that he has to do it for you. Whatever you, you pray for, and, and they'll cite Jesus' Jesus's own words for this, uh, John 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, each one of those chapters has an instance where Jesus said something to this effect, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. 
Uh, and so they say, you know, what? hey, whatever you ask, whatever you ask, he's going to do. Yeah, well, they put the, the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable as it is. You know, they put the wrong emphasis on the wrong thing in the, in the thing there. Because Jesus, that's, it's not whatever you ask. He said, whatever you ask in my name. In other words, he says, whatever you ask in my character, whatever you ask in my nature, whatever you ask in accordance with my will, that's what Jesus is saying. And so those who say, well, no, he's got to do whatever you ask. No, they miss the whole point. It's whatever you ask in his character, whatever you ask in his will, whatever you ask in accordance with, with, with his nature. And so, again, we rightly perceive who Jesus is, but we wrongly try to force him and fit him into our agenda, into what we want to do, into what we think is right. In Mark's uh, gospel, a, a few chapters ahead from here, in chapter 8, we have an interesting situation where, uh, and we talked about it last week, um, you know, Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And uh, they say, oh, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that that the Lord was speaking there. All right. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And he says, yeah, but, but who do you say that I am? And, and, and Peter gets it right, right? He just steps up. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I, and I say to you that, that you are, are Petros, you're a, you're a little rock, and on this rock uh, I will build my church. Of course, the rock is the profession of Jesus Christ as the Christ. Well, right after that happens, almost in the same breath, Jesus is preparing his disciples, wants them to know that he's getting ready to go uh, to you know to depart, to die on the cross, and he's, he's and he's trying to prepare them for this eventuality. And and Peter steps up, again, almost in the same breath. In one moment, he's, he's in the Spirit of God saying, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. In almost the very next breath, Peter says, he rebukes the Lord. He says, no, that's not good. it's not going to go down that way. And, and Jesus says those now famous words that we all know so well. He turns around, he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. So it goes from saying, wow, blessed are you, Peter. Man, the Lord's revealed this to you. And that's all, get behind me. Satan. And, and again, we're like that. Have you ever had an encounter with God like that? Where, where you know, in one moment you, you feel like, you know, you, you're just in the zone, you're, you're honoring him, and you're in the spirit, and the next moment you're totally trying to fit him and mold him into your agenda and to your plans. For me, a couple of years ago, several years ago, I had everything all mapped out. I knew where I was. I knew what God had called me to do. I knew where I was going. I, you know, and I, and like, you know, I had, I was, I was all settled in in ministry and the Lord began to minister to my heart and he began, began to challenge me, telling me that he was calling me to step out in faith. And, and I resisted and I fought and I'm like, you know, I, I'm like Cortez, man. I burned my ships. I left the fire department, left my career, cashed out my retirement. And I, I, you told me to start a church. I started a church. And Lord, it's, it's good. And I've got, you know, a nice office with a sweet view. And I got a huge staff and I got a nice salary and I've got my vacation benefits. And, and it's all, and now I know what I want to do. I've got my idea for the next 20 years of the kind of ministry that I want to do. And, and the Lord just, you know, no. 
that's not what I've called you to. And so the next, you know, month or so was just this battle between me and God, just wrestling back and forth. And deep down, I knew what he was calling me to do, but I had to get to the place he was calling me to step out in faith. And, and Lord, can I? And I just fought him. And, and the Lord's saying, I want you to lay down your power. I want you to lay down your position. I want you to lay down your paycheck. This is what I'm calling you to do. And me just fighting him and trying to, to have this argument. Maybe you've had the same conversation with God. Where, where he's directing you in a way. He's telling you what to do. He's telling you where he wants to take you in life. And you're fighting him and you're resisting him. And the Lord's just trying to, to, to direct you and to mold you and say, no, it's not about your will. It's about my will. It's not about the way that seems right to you. It's about the way that I know is right, the way that I want to take you. Peter, again, you got to love Peter. I, I so identify with the Apostle Peter because he's, he's just, he's an all or nothing kind of guy. He's way impulsive. In Luke chapter 9, you'll, you'll recall up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, Jesus goes up there and, and he's met by, by Moses and Elijah. And, and Peter is seeing all this take place. And Peter jumps in and, and he says, Lord, this is good. Uh, it's good to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. Let's stay here. Let's just have this forever, man. Let's build the tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the text tells us at that point that God thundered from heaven, and he said this. He said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. In other words, God saying to Peter, Peter, shut up. Sit down. Not about you building your tabernacles and doing ministry as it seems right to you. I, that, just, you're in the way. It's not about your will. It's not about what you want to do. Just shut up and sit down. And that's the situation here in our text. We've got men who have the, the concept of who Jesus is, the right concept of who he is, but they have the wrong concept about what he has come to do. And, you know, this is a much bigger situation, guys, today than we imagine. It's, it's a, it, this is a huge situation just in the world today. I've given you several examples. But, you know, <clears throat> as a pastor, I see people over and over again who live their lives with the wrong concept of God. And having the wrong concept of God uh, can can do great harm to your walk with the Lord. It can even prevent you from having a right relationship with the Lord. It can prevent you from knowing the Lord. Jesus said, there's going to be many who stand before him who say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. And what's he going to say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. And those are some scary words. And so the thing is, is that there, and we could stay here all day. I could tell you statistics all day long and, and different examples all day long of how people have the wrong concept of God and how their wrong concept of God can lead them to hell. Uh, I just wanted to cite one example for you. Abortion. Let me give you some quick facts about abortion. Every day in the United States, 3,750 children are murdered in abortion. Worldwide, 115,000 babies are killed in abortion every day. That's 42 million babies a year worldwide that are killed by abortion. Since 1973, in the United States alone, over 55 million babies have been murdered in abortion. Let me put that into perspective for you. 
That's the population of our 66 largest cities. Since 1973, the population of the 66 largest cities in America have been murdered in our babies. There are more abortions in the United States than there are live births. We kill more babies than we, than we deliver. Shockingly, according to the Barna Research Group, 45% of churchgoers think it's okay to have an abortion. 45% of the people who go to churches think that God's okay with it. Worse than that, 60% of those who have had an abortion, according to the Barna Research Group, consider themselves to be Christians. My experience, by the way, supports this. The other day I was taking an online poll uh, in regards to abortion. And, um, and, you know, as I took the poll, they had a comment section. And whenever, I love to read the comments section just, you know, just to see. It gives you just a great picture of where people are at. I mean, we have a pretty good idea, but I always read the comments. It sometimes, you know, it doesn't do my blood pressure any good. I yell at my computer screen and stuff. <laughs> but, but I'm reading the comment section, and I, I singled out one comment from one gal uh, and, and this was echoed in dozens of people's comments, this sentiment that I'm about to share with you in, in the sentence I'm going to read. But it's just her sentence sort of sums up what many girls said on this, on this online poll. She said, quote, my God is a God of love. He's okay with a girl getting an abortion if he knows that it's going to ruin her life, end quote. Just in case you're wondering, that's wrong. Okay, he's not okay with it, just in case you didn't know. It, the, the psalmist said this. He said, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Listen to this, what he says. Next, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. The psalmist knows it, but how many people, they argue, they say, oh, it's just a bunch of tissue. It's, it doesn't, it's insignificant. It's not a baby. It's just some tissue. No, the psalmist says, your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Psalm 139, 13 through 15. John 1, 3 says this, all things were made through him, And without him, nothing was made that was made. This includes that, that, you know, baby in the mom's womb. All things were made by him. All life comes from him. Genesis 2-7 says that God breathes the breath of life into man and gives us life. And in Exodus 20-13, God gives us the sixth commandment, where he says, Thou shalt not kill. All life comes from God, and yet because this woman has the wrong concept of the Lord, the wrong concept of Jesus, she's deluded herself into thinking that he exists to bend himself around her whim, around her will, to do whatever it is that makes her happy, even if that includes her murdering her baby. Now, as I said, this, this is one example. We, that we could apply the same attitude 
throughout society into a multitude of different issues. The homosexual who says, my God is a God of tolerance. The alcoholic or the drug addict who says, my God is a God of forgiveness. Or the, the nominal Christian who, who lives like hell all week long and every so often graces the, the doorway of a church with his presence and thinks that God's okay you know, with him just sort of breezing in and breezing out and living the way that he wants to live. And, and his excuse is, well, my God is a God of love and forgiveness. Listen, it's true. God is loving. And it's true, guys, that God is forgiving. And if you're here, one of the millions of women who have had an abortion, and statistically, there are many here today who've had an abortion. Here's what you need to hear from the heart of God. His love and His forgiveness, it is real. It's extended to you. He does love you. He does forgive. He does pardon our sin and cover over our sin. If you're someone who's been caught up in in homosexual sin or you've been caught up in sexual sin or you've been caught up in drugs or alcohol or, or, you know, you've been sort of a... Christian who attend, breezes in, breezes out, but doesn't, whatever it is, God is a God of love. He is a God of forgiveness. You do need to hear that message. But listen, here's what you need to hear. Only on his terms. Only exclusively on God's terms. And his terms are always involved, the complete surrender of our will. That's the whole point of this text that we're going through today. The complete and total and utter surrender of our will to the will of God. That's where we find His grace. That's where we find His mercy. That's where we find His forgiveness. We don't find His grace, His mercy, and forgiveness in expecting Him just to sort of wink at our cavalier lifestyle and let us do whatever we want. Listen, God is not so much interested in your happiness. In fact, I go so far as to say He doesn't care about your happiness. He's interested in your holiness. He wants to make you wholly right and, and, and complete in Him. And so we see in our text that Jesus is confronted by men that want to force Him to be their king on their own terms. And, and so in response to this, our text, we see Jesus doing three things. First of all, we see Him sending His disciples into the storm and the multitudes away. Secondly, we see Him depart to the mountains to pray. And thirdly, we see Him coming to the disciples on the storm. So let's take a look at this. As we deal with this issue, God dealing with this issue, Jesus, of men who rightly perceive him, but wrongly try to force him to conform to them, rather the other way around. So first of all, Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. Notice in verse 45, how it's worded. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. That word immediately, if you have a King James Bible, an old King James, they use the word constrained. And in the Greek, this literally means that it was by force, by threats, by entreaties, or by any other means that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. In other words, his disciples fought him. When, when all of this went down and they picked up all the baskets and wow, this is great and the people are saying, you know, we want to make him our king. There's a good likelihood that the disciples were right there with them. They're like, yes, 25,000 people support you for king. That's a good basis. Of, that's a good ground, ground support, man. That's a, that's a good basis for a campaign. 
Yeah, we, you know, let's make you king. Yes, ruler, reign. Let's, let's, let's go and get those guys out of here and make you our king. And you're going to feed us fish and chips all the time. And yeah, that's good. We don't know. Maybe that was their attitude. Maybe their attitude was just, they didn't want to get back in that stupid boat. And we just got in the boat. We came all the way over here. We we're supposed to have a vacation. Where's the vacation, man? You promised us a vacation. All we did was work there. We got here. We worked here. You want us to get back in the boat and go, what, are the people waiting for us there too? Are we going to, you know, it's just, come on. So maybe that was the issue. Or, you know, maybe they knew that a storm was coming. That could have been an issue. They're fishermen, after all. They spend their time on the lake. And, and so maybe they knew, hey, this is a bad time for us to go out on that lake. Man, there's a storm brewing. We do not want to be out on that lake with, with a storm. Whatever the reason, Jesus sends them away. He forces them out into the storm. There's a couple of reasons for this and a couple of reasons that we can apply into our own lives. Remember, they've got the wrong perspective. They got the wrong perspective of who Jesus is. And the first thing that going into a storm does in our lives is that it alters our perspective, doesn't it? Going through a storm in life alters our perspective. We just look at what happened to the disciples before the storm. They're arguing with Jesus. When they're in the midst of the storm, what are they doing? They're crying out for Jesus, man. Their, their, their perspective has been radically altered. Second thing going into a storm does is that going through a storm in life, it strengthens us. It actually prepares us for future storms, for future hardships. It makes us stronger. It makes us, it makes us better. Uh, I've told you guys, I think, the story before, the biosphere several years ago, and, and they had created this environment, this enclosed environment. They were doing some sort of an environmental study, and they wanted to see what an environment free from pollution was. And so it was all enclosed. And midway through the, the experiment, the trees inside the, the, uh, the, the biosphere, they began to break and fall. And what they found out was it was the absence of wind. It was the absence of stress. It was the absence of hardship, really, that were causing these trees to become brittle. Because what happens in a tree as it's blown back and forth is that the bark actually is stressed and it cracks and, it, and it's, the tree sends nutrients to, to, to heal those areas that are, that are withered or, or, or damaged under the stress. And in that healing, it actually strengthens the tree. And so in the absence of the wind blowing, the, there's no stress hitting the tree, so there's no strengthening that's required, and so ultimately the tree becomes brittle and it breaks. And it's the same issue in our life that the Lord allows us to go through these times of trial, these storms in our lives, because He wants to strengthen us. Maybe you're going through a storm in your life right now a financial or an emotional, physical, whatever. Maybe, you know, you, you're going through a situation where a spouse has left you or a job is, is gone, you know, south or your savings is dwindling down, whatever it is. And, and I just want to encourage you that the Lord works within our trials. And maybe you're here today and, and you've, you've, you're in a really sweet spot and, and you're not going through a trial it's a guarantee you will be going through a trial. It's kind of like a motorcycle rider. There's two types of riders, those that have been down and those who are going down, right? And it's the same thing with the trials and the stresses in our lives. There's, there's two types of people in this world, those who have gone through a storm and those who are going to be going through a storm. 
And so, you know, wherever you're at today, we need to know that we need to bank on the fact that we're going to have future trials, we're going to have storms, and that God strategically allows those storms, often many times, pushes us into those storms. He says, hey, you got the whole wrong concept about who I am and how I want to work in your life. Let me straighten you out a little bit. Try this on for size. And you're like, oh, and you just picture these guys out in that boat. I mean, they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing. And it says it was the third watch of the night. That's like between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They've been out there forever. Rowing. You can see them bailing the water, freaking out. The Lord's like, okay, Now it's about time for me to show you the right perspective of who I am. And the only way he can do that is through the storm. It's interesting. As we read through the book of Acts, you guys are freshly familiar with that, us going through it for 14 months uh, prior to this book. But in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're not chronologically, as we read in Mark, they're not there yet. But in Acts chapter 3 and 4, you see 5,000 men get saved on the day of Pentecost. This great work of God. Just the same here, 5,000 men. And then what happens as we read through the the account in the book of Acts, what followed the 5,000 men getting saved? Persecution. It's the way God works. Blessing and persecution. Blessing and persecution. If, If all you had was blessing your whole life, there would be no strengthening, no conditioning, no preparing for the work that God ultimately wants to do and for the trials that are going to be coming your way. And so we see Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. But secondly, we see that Jesus departed to the mountain to pray. I want you to take a look at verse 46. Look where Jesus is when his disciples are going through such a hard time. Verse 46, And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Verse 47, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land. Verse 48, Then he saw them. You might want to circle that in your Bible. Jesus sees the disciples in the midst of the storm. And Jesus sees you in the midst of your storm. And I know it's hard to, to realize that when all we're doing is rowing and bailing and that's all we can think about is not getting overwhelmed by the, by the waves that are coming. But Jesus sees what's going on and more than that, Jesus is praying for them. He's praying for them. We see that, that uh, he, as he was up there, he's, 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 uh, he's praying, he sees them, he's praying for them. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, in Luke's Gospel, Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. For time's sake, I'll read it to you. But Jesus is preparing Peter for the hardship and the trial that he's going to go through. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Do you know how wheat is sifted, by the way? You beat on it. And then you throw it up in the air and the wind beats on it to blow the chaff away. And then what comes down is, is, the, is the thing of value. And, and Jesus telling Peter, hey, Satan wants to beat on you and blow on you and throw you around. But listen to what he says next. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Guys, we can face the storms in our lives with confidence because just as these guys here can attest, Jesus is praying for them. He's praying for us. 
in the midst of our storm. As a matter of fact, turn to Romans chapter 8, over to the right to Romans chapter 8. Such an encouraging section of Scripture as we talk about the idea that Jesus is praying for us. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, it says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who did. And furthermore, listen, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Guys, that means right now, this very minute, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God and he's praying for you by name. He knows your circumstance. He knows your situation. And the Lord Jesus himself, just as he prayed for the disciples in that boat, he's praying for you and me. Whatever storm we're going through, whatever trial we're going through. And, and I love, just let's read through just the rest of the chapter here, verse 35 of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that means whatever storm you're going through, whether it's financial, emotional, physical, whatever it is, Nothing can separate you from God's love. And Jesus is praying for you right now. And there's a high likelihood that he's orchestrated the storm that you're currently in. Because he wants to get you rightly related to him. In some way, in some fashion, somehow in your life, you had the misconception about Jesus and what he wanted to do in your life. Your relationship with God was lacking in some way. And he allows you to go through that trial and that stress and that hardship so that you'll be rightly related to him, so that you won't be misled. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, finally, we see back in Mark chapter 6, that not only is Jesus praying for his disciples, but he also comes to the disciples. Mark chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 47. Now when evening came, and the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land. Then he saw straining at, at rowing, for the, uh, he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And now, about the fourth watch of the night, about between three a.m. and six a.m. in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. <clears throat> Notice, when does Jesus come? He comes at the darkest hour. He comes at the darkest part of the night. I don't know about you guys, but when you're stressing about something, what's the worst time, man? It's those wee morning hours when you're laying in bed and you're freaking out. Again, for me, God, because of the nature of God's call on my life and what he was doing in, in my life a few years ago, his, his, his call to me was, I'm calling you to step out in faith and then I'm going to tell you what to do. 
And so here in my life, the situation was God said, lay down your power, lay down your position, lay down your paycheck. Walk away from everything that you've known. And then I'll tell you what to do. I'm like, what? Seriously? Are you kidding me? And that's exactly what I did. And I was freaked out the whole way. And Brenda, and I never got, I, I never to, really told her this, um, but I told her after the fact, we, we, there were several late nights where I was freaking out. And Brenda, she's like, my trailer's hitched to you. Wherever you go, I'm going. So, you know, you just tell me where we're going and I'm there. And I'm like, thank you, baby. That's what I need. You know, you, you want a wife that's behind you says, I'm with you. I'll go wherever you go, you know? And, and so, uh, and so I'm like putting on this brave front. I can't tell her that inwardly I'm dying here. I'm freaking out, man. And there were a couple of late nights where I was laying in bed and I'm freaking out. God, what on earth are you doing? Because I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what he was calling me to do. I didn't know what, I didn't know. All I knew was, okay, everything else I've burned and now I'm waiting on you, Lord. Where is it? Where am I going? What am I going to do? And, and then, so there I am, and there's one late night in particular, and, and, you know, it was between three and six o'clock in the morning, God showed up. And he spoke to me, and he just breathed life into me, and he just showed me, hey, you know what, Ted? I'm here, and it's going to be okay. You just keep your eyes on me. And in that night, man, the Lord, he just came to me. And you know, here's the interesting thing. He came to me on the storm. God comes to us in the very thing that we're most afraid of. God comes to us in the thing that we dread, that we don't want to have happen, that we would just, oh, I can't, I just hope in everything, I just hope this never happens. And then God all of a sudden says, oh, okay, wham, and you're like, whoa. But that's the thing that God comes to us in. It's the thing that he uses to, to appear to us. And so here Jesus comes, and he's walking on the water, verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out. Verse 54, they all saw him, and they were troubled. But immediately he talked with them, and he said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Now our text goes on to talk about him getting up into the boat. But we know from the other gospel accounts that that's not where the story ends. And I, it's kind of weird. I mean, you know, who, who's really the author behind the book of Mark? It's Peter, remember? Peter telling John Mark about what all happened. Why does Peter leave out of his own testament, of his own example, that he actually got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus? Was he embarrassed because he took his eyes off the Lord and sank? Uh, or is he being, you know, modest and doesn't want to call attention to himself? Whatever it is, thank God the other guys put the, the, the account in for us. Turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. Immediately Jesus spoke to them. He says, be of good cheer. It's I do not be afraid. Uh, verse 28, and Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and he caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, Jesus comes on the storm, but guys, we need to meet him in that place. We need to meet him by faith. And that's exactly what Peter did. 
Peter looked to him and he, and he said, Lord, if that's you, call me to come to you. And Jesus said, come to me, Peter. And as long as Peter kept his eyes on the Lord, he was all right. He too could walk on the very thing that had been most threatening to them. That storm, that trial, that hardship, that thing that he was most afraid of. Peter was able to be more than an overcomer in that and to walk on that himself right to Jesus. What was the problem? What interfered with that? He took his eyes off the Lord. Again, look at verse 30 in Matthew chapter 14. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and he began to sink. You see, he took his eyes off the Lord. As long as he had his eyes on Jesus, he was able to overcome. He was able to go through that storm. But the moment he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink. And listen, what's the big context of this? What's Jesus trying to show these guys? You got the wrong concept of who I am. And I need to straighten out your attitude. I need to straighten your head out. I need you to get your head on straight so you understand who I am and who I am in your life and what I've come to do. And you need to be in that place of complete surrender and submission. Total surrender to me. Look back in Mark chapter 6. Jesus says, be of good cheer. It's I don't be afraid. Peter keeps his eyes on him. He's doing fine. He takes his eyes off him. He sinks. Verse 51. Then he went up into the boat to them. And the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed, and in themselves beyond measure, and marveled. Verse 52, for they had not understood, listen, they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. What? What does that mean? Here's what it means. Jesus doing the miracle of the loaves, the whole idea was he wants the disciples to know, I'm God. And you trust me for everything. Keep your eyes focused on me for everything. You come to me for everything. Take your marching orders from me. And I'm going to lead you in the way of everlasting. But what happened was they took their eyes off that. And they said, Jesus, you'd be a welcome addition to my kingdom. I need a guy like you around to help me out with the things that I want to do. They get it all backwards. And so Jesus says, yeah, that's the way you think. Go out into the storm and get your perspective corrected. So you know exactly who I am. And Jesus comes to them walking on the storm. And Peter goes running out to meet Jesus. Sinks when he takes his eyes off the Lord. And the Lord just lifts him up. He's like, why do you lack faith? And now we see the outcome. The outcome is, wow, they were greatly amazed beyond measure. They marveled. They hadn't understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. But now they're getting it. Now they're understanding it. Jesus, it's not about the way that seems right to us. It's about the way that is right to you. It's not about me having my will done in heaven. It's about you having your will done on earth, in and through my life. And as we close, guys, I want to ask you you the question for you. Point of application. What is your perspective about Jesus today? Who is Jesus to you today? Is he this welcome addition to your kingdom that winks at your sin, you think, and is just your homeboy that's around to take care of you and to to, to give you a job when you lack a job and to, to help you have more patience or, yeah, I could use some kindness or, yeah, I could use that. But for the most part, you're not interested in surrendering to him as Lord. You just want him around to build up your kingdom. Is he that to you? Or is Jesus Lord of all? The one that if you take your eyes off him just for a minute, you're going to sink. Which one are you today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. 
and for showing us, Lord, through a very familiar story, Jesus, that you are Lord of all, that you have called us to surrender all to you, to trust you with everything, to walk in obedience, Lord, with you. A life that's lived fully, totally surrendered, saying God is king, God is Lord, God is all, and I am his humble servant. And Lord, whatever you choose to do in my life, I pray that I would just simply be trusting and obeying. You say trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, the hymn goes, Lord, but to trust and obey. I pray, Father, that that would be what characterizes us. And as we partake of communion today, Lord, We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you this bread symbolizes your body broken on the cross for us. This juice symbolizes your blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And you tell us that we're to do this in remembrance of you. And that as often as we eat or drink, we proclaim your death until you come. Lord, you tell us not to partake in an unworthy manner but that we're to use this opportunity to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to see, am I surrendering my life to the Lord? Am I truly appreciating that He has laid His life down for me so that I might have eternal life as I lay down my life for Him? Lord, help us to do that today. Be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new here today, here's how we do this. We're just going to go through one instrumental song. And as we do, that's, that's your uh, opportunity to come up and, and take the elements. And you take them and go back to your seat. This is your time individually to do business with God. Uh, you pray and you partake of the communion elements as you're ready individually. And, and then we'll close with a final song.